and welcome to Radio Disclosure. If you're an X-Files buff or if you like UFOs or even slightly interested in UFOs, today is your show. Emmy Award winning science reporter Linda Moulton Howe is up first with her report on a new drone looking spacecraft that's been seen uh, in Holland. And also Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, detailed investigators on the Aztec UFO crash. If you've wondered about the Aztec crash, this is your chance to get up to speed. So, don't go away. Stay tuned. We've got lots coming up right here on Radio Disclosure. The 75 and 80 meter band has always presented somewhat of a problem for many radio amateurs. The problem? Antenna space. There just isn't anywhere to put up an antenna. Many places that people are living today. If you're retired, you're in a high rise. Guess what? We got the answer to your problem. You can take the new Transworld Antennas 8080 and put it on your balcony. This thing is stealth. Nobody will have any idea what it is. If you live in a in, a, in an area where the 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 antenna restrictions are real stringent, you could put one of these in your backyard. They wouldn't have any idea that it's an antenna. This thing performs flawlessly. It does fantastic on 75 and 80 meters. It folds up, goes in a bag, it's stealth. It's all the things that you recall us talking about the TW2010. Go to transworldantennas.com. That's transworldantennas.com. And take a look at the 2010, the 4040, the 6060, and now the 8080. If you've always wanted to operate 80 meters, you haven't had the space to do it, this is the opportunity. If you travel, you have an RV, you'd like to take 80 on the road, and you want better performance in a mobile antenna, this is the antenna for you. Go to transworldantennas.com. That's transworldantennas.com. Attention radio disclosure listeners. We really need to hear from you. Write us. Go to the website radiodisclosure.com that's radiodisclosure.com and even though the site's not finished uh, we have a place up there where you can send us an email we really need to hear from you no spam if you if you write us you you will not be turned over to the spam squad we will not be sending you spam or or disclosing your email address to anyone also we want to put your name down for some future giveaways we've got some stuff coming up we'll be having some drawings so anyone that writes is going to be eligible for the drawings we'll have some nice things be giving away very shortly on radio disclosure once again we'd love to hear from you make suggestions of things you'd like to hear and make suggestions about things you don't like we appreciate all of those comments radiodisclosure.com is the website go up there and hit the email tab send us an email radiodisclosure.com and I thank you so very much in advance and now ladies and gentlemen Emmy award winning journalist Linda Moulton Howe it was two years ago on May 4th 2007 that coast to coast AM webmaster Lex received an email from a central California resident who called himself Chad. The email was about his photographing an odd dragonfly-shaped aerial object near his California home. A week later, Chad emailed some of his photographs dated May 6, 2007. 
In addition to the dragonfly-shaped body that had appendages sticking out from a large ring, there was another odd feature. Rising from the ring straight up into the air were slightly curved, thin wires that formed a tall, circular crown above the dragonfly body. Chad was worried about his family's safety and health after he saw the bizarre aerial object at least eight times, he said, from his house and on hikes near his home and heard a low electrostatic hum coming from it. Neighbors, he said, had also seen the unidentified aerial object. Other 2007 photographs of dragonfly-shaped aerial objects began to emerge between May and June from Lake Tahoe, Capitola, and Big Basin, California, all with appendages sticking out from a ring and the tall, thin wires extending high above. By June 17, 2007, I received a dozen paper photographs dated June 5, 2007, in mail at my post office. The new dragonfly drone looked more menacing and more complicated than the others. I had taken to calling the objects drones because eyewitnesses had the impression that the hovering craft were not manned. The dozen paper photographs at my post office were from a man who called himself Ty B. Ty explained he photographed the large dragonfly craft while bicycling with a group in the Big Basin Redwood Park near Saratoga, California. He said they all saw the dragonfly-shaped craft fade in and fade out three times above them. It was on the third fade-in that Ty was able to take 12 photos, which he mailed to me. After the June 2007 Big Basin craft photographs, other cases emerged in which eyewitnesses at least sketched odd aerial dragonfly-shaped aircraft. I produced a map at my news website, earthfiles.com, that shows the 15 regions now known in the United States in which 20 eyewitnesses have reported seeing a wingless aerial craft with antenna appendages hovering and moving like a dragonfly. The time span for these eyewitness sightings is 21 years, from 1987 to 2008. But no other 2007 photographs of the mysterious drones emerged until now. The date of the new photos goes back to Saturday, September 8, 2007, not long after the Big Basin, California photographs. 49-year-old Rude Schmidt was camping for the weekend with his wife and family in Petten, Holland. For 18 years, Rude has worked as a therapist for the mentally handicapped in Lake Holland, and he likes to relax near water with a fishing rod. On September 8th, 2007, around 1.30 p.m., he and his wife had walked to a small lake behind the camp to fish when he suddenly saw an object in the sky about a mile away, maybe a thousand feet up. There was no sound that he and his wife could hear, and neither could figure out what they were seeing. Rude took a dozen digital images with his Nikon D50 camera and its 100-300mm to millimeter Sigma lens with autofocus. This was a camera he had purchased new in 2005. Rude told me that he took all the photographs in about six minutes. We went um, to a camping in Petten, Holland. How many of you went? My wife, my two daughters, and my parents, 
and my sister and my brother-in-law all camping just for a couple of days. And so you're in Patton? In Patton, yes. Okay. Me and my wife went fishing. That's behind the camping. There's a, a small water. We were fishing and um, suddenly I saw something in the sky and we didn't know what it was. So uh, my wife said, uh, why don't you take pictures of it? And I couldn't see what it was because it, it was just a black spot. And I have a camera and I didn't have uh, spectacles. So I, uh, I used my camera to see what it was. But that was very difficult because I didn't recognize it. So I took some pictures. I believe I took 12 pictures. And uh, on the computer at home, we, uh, we looked at it, and I didn't know what it was. How far do you think the object was from you? About uh, two kilometers. About a mile? Yeah. Okay. And about how high in the air do you think? Uh, just a guess. Eh? I think it was about uh, 250 or 300 meters. Okay, about a 1,000 feet? Yes. Could you hear any sound? No. We didn't hear any sound. Not any normal aerodynamic? No. It looked like a spider. I'm very curious about it. You saw it as a dark object in the sky. Did you keep watching it until what happened? Now we were fishing. And uh, when I took uh, some pictures, we uh, just keep on fishing. And uh, once in a while, we looked up if it's still there. We didn't see it coming, and we didn't see it leaving. It was gone. Well, after you had taken the 12 images on your Nikon camera, did you continue to watch it further with your eyes? Yes, but we also went keeping on uh, fishing. (laughs) So did it just disappear while you were watching it, or...? No, no, we didn't see it disappear. We were fishing, and we looked uh, to the water, and uh, we looked up, and and then it was gone. (laughs) When you had your 12 images on your computer, did you ever ask any friends to come in and take a look at the photos to see if anybody could recognize it? I have asked my brother-in-law, and I asked my father, and, uh, yeah, well, we are very septic people. Uh, I don't know what it is. could be anything. We didn't have any answers, and uh, so I left it. I thought, uh, well, uh, what to do with it? No, I did nothing. (laughs) I let them on the computer. (laughs) (sighs) How many of you saw this all at the same time? Only me and my wife. The rest of the family was cooking. (laughs) And so you left those 12 images of the unknown in the sky until when on your computer? Last year. Last year I spoke a friend and uh, he said maybe you have to post it on on a website to ask for what it is. And I did. And I posted on, I think it was the wrong website. I posted on Dutch Niburu website, just right in a forum. So uh, last Monday, I thought, uh, what to do with the pictures? And I was uh, cleaning up my PC. And last year, I also uh, was a little bit interested in the UFO casebook. Just for uh, every day, I look uh, if there's something new. And I posted to the UFO casebook, and he said, uh, well, uh, I have to place it in a forum, and maybe somebody know what it is. And he did. And then uh, and then you, you mailed me, and everybody mailed me, and, uh, <laughs> well, if I knew what it, uh, if I knew what it uh, would be, well, I don't know how to again. 
Well, if I understand, you had never heard of what we call the dragonfly drone phenomenon ever before. No, not really. Had you ever seen any of the photographs that I reported in 2007 and 2008 that look a bit like dragonflies in the sky? No. When I posted on the UFO Facebook, there were many reactions. And uh, there are many people who declare me something like uh, a liar, and that's a little bit frustrating. And that apparently has been provoked by some calculated misinformation campaign by people unknown in 2007 trying to paint the photos that emerged as being hoaxed and that anybody who calls you a liar, they have been influenced exactly as wanted. Right. You took photographs of an object that you and your wife were watching while you were fishing. Well, the object is there. But at the moment, we don't know what it is. And it, it could be anything. When people said to me, it's a balloon, I, all right, it's a balloon, it's a, it's a kite. It's all right, it's a kite. It's something with a camera. I don't know what it is. That's why I, uh, I posted it. If anyone has seen and or photographed a similar spider-shaped aerial object or one of the dragonfly-shaped aerial craft or drones, please email me at earthfiles at earthfiles.com. All requests for confidentiality are honored. Be sure and drop an email to Linda Moulton Howe and let her know you heard her on Radio Disclosure. You can do that by going to her website, earthfiles.com. That's earthfiles.com. Or you can simply write Linda at earthfiles at earthfiles.com. That's earthfiles at earthfiles.com. She'd love to hear from you. So be sure and, and drop her a line or an email and let her know you heard her on Radio Disclosure on this station. Her email address is earthfiles at earthfiles.com. And her website is earthfiles.com. The 75 and 80 meter band has always presented somewhat of a problem for many radio amateurs. The problem, antenna space. There just isn't anywhere to put up an antenna. Many places that people are living today. If you're retired, you're in a high rise. Guess what? We got the answer to your problem. You can take the new Transworld antennas... 8080 and put it on your balcony this thing is stealth nobody will have any idea what it is if you live in a in a in an area where the 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 antenna restrictions are real stringent you could put one of these in your backyard they wouldn't have any idea that it's an antenna this thing performs flawlessly it does fantastic on 75 and 80 meters it folds up goes in a bag it's stealth it's all the things that you recall us talking about the tw2010 go to transworldantennas.com that's transworldantennas.com and take a look at the 2010 the 4040 the 6060 and now the 8080 if you've always wanted to operate 80 meters, you haven't had the space to do it, this is the opportunity. If you travel, you have an RV, you'd like to take 80 on the road, and you want better performance than a mobile antenna, this is the antenna for you. Go to transworldantennas.com. That's transworldantennas.com.
Have you been looking for a place to put a website? Have you thought about putting your own website up or possibly you've got your own right now and you're not real happy? The name to think about and remember is Tux-Support.com. Tux like Tuxedo, the little penguin, the uh, mascot for Lennox, the Lennox operating system. Tux-Support.com. Just remember that name. If you're looking for a website for your amateur radio club, your church, your organization, your business, or even a personal site, you need a place to put that site, and you want a simple way to put it together and maintain it, one word or one company to remember, that's tux-support.com. Tux-support.com. That's T-U-X-S-U-P-P-O-R-T. Tux-support.com, the only name you need to know when it comes to your website. Our guest is Scott and Suzanne Ramsey. They have a new book. It's called Aztec 1948 UFO Crash, Hoax or Hidden Truth. And uh, these folks have been researching this crash for a long time. And they have uh, uncovered all kinds of things. You're going to find out what really happened in Aztec, New Mexico on March 25th, 1948. Was there a UFO crash? Were there alien bodies recovered? And was this another U.S. government cover-up? It's all coming up right here on Radio Disclosure. Since the beginning of time and across the history of radio broadcasting... There's only one radio station that has ever earned a full-length documentary dedicated totally and completely to its rise to a pinnacle never before achieved by any radio station and its fall. This is a story of what happened when the most legendary programming genius of all time takes the reins of an obscure Canadian radio station in the small city of Windsor, Canada and creates a radio legend that rocked the Motor City, the USA, and half a continent. That does it for Big Tom Rivers. 1971. And Hank O'Neill starts a brand new year next at CKLW. For the last time this year, I will say to you, Rock on, Mama! Ladies and gentlemen, the beat goes on. CKLW. 2020 news guys, they were disc jockeys without music. Um, um, um. And everybody knew that something was going to happen. You knew something was going to happen. Motor City Mayor Roman Gribbs has a mad on for an unidentified rapist. A butcher, knife-wielding pervert cornered a secretary in the elevator at Detroit City County Building and rode her to a vacant seventh floor and proceeded to sexually assault her. Guards are now being considered for future surveillance of the crime-stained seventh floor. Lee Marshall, 2020 News. Now, Markham Street Productions takes you there as you relive the rise and fall of the big HCKLW, the Motor City. You can now own your own copy of this new DVD documentary, Radio Revolution, the rise and fall of the Big 8 from Markham Street Productions. The special edition DVD of this award-winning feature-length documentary includes extra scenes, outtakes, photos, and special features, Radio Revolution, the Rise and Fall of the Big Eight is now available for only $29.95 plus shipping. Go to RadioRevolutionDVD.com. 
That's RadioRevolutionDVD.com. Order now while supply lasts. RadioRevolutionDVD.com. That's RadioRevolutionDVD.com. And the hits just keep on coming. CKLW. Our guest today, Scott and Suzanne Ramsey. Uh, there's a book coming out on the uh, the Aztec crash. Uh, Scott and Suzanne both are experts on this subject. So I want to first say hello to Scott and welcome you aboard. And uh, you can kind of introduce, um, if you wish, you can introduce. Uh, Suzanne, and you can also uh, kind of give us a little background as to how you got into this research. Okay. Uh, that started in late uh, 1980s. I was uh, basically going through the Denver airport trying to get a flight back to Charlotte, North Carolina, where I live, and my flight got canceled. And I ran to a pay phone and called a customer that I had never met, but I had talked to on the phone quite a bit in Farmington, New Mexico, and told him that my flight was canceled and I had a, a day to run down to see him. And uh, long story short, at his plant, uh, they, they have a large motor rewind plant in Farmington. And uh, we were testing a, a motor generator set. And late that night, I overheard some local Navajos talking about what they were going to do for the weekend, and one was going to go hunt mule deer out by the old crash site. And that my ears perked up, and I kind of asked questions, and I didn't know these guys very well. I was trying to invite myself into the conversation, and I asked them what old crash site, and they said, ah, it's an old folklore or wives tale about the ufo that crashed out there in late 40s or early 50s well one thing led to another my curiosity got a hold of me and i went out and oh after many trips out there i found the site and found what i thought was the site and basically started to listen to local stories and the town was pretty split aztec is an adjoining town next to farmington and the town was pretty split. Some wrote it off as just uh, an old tale, and others said there was something to it. And uh, that that started the whole journey. So the, the, just just this conversation with these fellows saying, "Let's go out to the old crash site." That's what that's what started your whole interest in this thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I knew nothing about the, the fact that Frank Scully had written a book on it, and. Ironically, at that time, uh, Bill Steinman and Wendell Stevens uh, did a self-published book that was probably out for it, oh, probably a year, I would guess, at that point. Well, what are some of the unusual things that, uh, once you started digging into it, uh, begin to, you know, I guess I want to say, begin to possess you to dig farther? Well, I'd made the the crazy remark uh, back then that uh, since uh, the gentleman that I came down to see had been, uh, we had been talking on the phone for years, and it was good to meet him eyeball to eyeball, and there was plenty of business there for me to get. Uh, I figured I'll be coming out here more and more often. This is a rather large account if I land it. And with my trips out here, I should have this thing figured out in about six months. 
<laughs> I, <guess. laughs> I was I was only off by twenty two years. Uh, not that we haven't figured out now, but uh, it uh, yeah it really just started out that way, very innocently. And and what really led me to it is everything I had heard and could dig up that really kind of poo-pooed the whole Aztec crash. And the more I researched it, I found out that the poo-pooers weren't so correct. And and t- tell me about that a little bit. Tell me, tell me about the the, the people who said that it's uh, it's just folklore or it never happened. And and then what is it that was compelling enough to say, "Whoa, wait a minute here. This is this is not what this is." Well, basically, just you know, going through the the list of things, uh, some people had made the claims uh, that the Heart Canyon Road didn't even exist in 1948. And uh, thanks to some people over at the Farmington Daily Times, we found an article that said that the last stagecoach robbery in New Mexico happened on Hart Canyon Road. Uh, Then digging up oil well maps and just topographic maps of that time frame, the road clearly was there. It was probably the not the only way up to Durango, but certainly the most traveled route, uh, whether it be by stagecoach car, depending on what time frame you're, you're looking at. So it was a main through fair. Um, oh, I guess the other one was uh, you'll never find anybody that has any first-hand knowledge about it. And that certainly took some time, but we did find people that had first-hand knowledge of it. And witnesses that were there that day as young men, 19, 20-year-old kids. And uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Look, I was going to say, why do you suppose, that, you know, at that point that, that folks were wanting to say things, well, like the road didn't exist and it's just, I mean, what causes folks to turn in this direction rather than maybe keeping a, a relative, a relatively objective, um, you know, approach to the thing? Well, then there were people that uh, did have a, an open mind to it, uh, but no, nobody with any facts. All I got was opinion in the early stages. And I don't know. I you know I, I love the town of Aztec, New Mexico. I've spent a lot of time there. Some years I was spending as much time out there as I was where I lived. Uh, it's a very laid back town. Wonderful people. Beautiful area. But I think, quite frankly, people that live in those areas don't want to be bothered. You know, and I'm not painting a, a broad brush on everybody, but I don't think it was really of interest to most people. Most people could really care less. Well, how is this it, different? It sparks some interest now. I mean, you know, now it's it's a rather, I would say, popular subject out there. How? What made this crash different than than the Roswell crash? Well, from all the research Suzanne and I have been able to do, this, this craft, and I don't even know if crash is the appropriate word. It almost came down in a controlled pancake-like landing. It was compared to other stories of UFO recoveries. This one was virtually intact. And what happened to it? Well, that's the the $20 question at this point. What did happen? What brought it down? I think it was brought down through military means, whether it was shot down or, or whatever. There was, as you read the book and see the research Suzanne and I did, and other people over the years have made the claim that there was a hole in one of the portholes. That story has been consistent over the years. Now, was that a projectile that was shot at it? Nobody will know. I mean, I don't know if we'll know in our lifetime. 
but uh, this, the consistent story year after year after year is the craft was virtually intact. We're going to take a break on Radio Disclosure, and we'll be back with Scott and Suzanne Ramsey and their new book, Aztec 1948 UFO Crash, Hoax or Hidden Truth. We'll be back right after this. The 75 and 80 meter band has always presented somewhat of a problem for many radio amateurs. The problem, antenna space. There just isn't anywhere to put up an antenna. Many places that people are living today. If you're retired, you're in a high rise. Guess what? We got the answer to your problem. You can take the new Transworld antennas 8080 and put it on your balcony. This thing is stealth. Nobody will have any idea what it is. If you live in a in, a, in an area where the 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 antenna restrictions are real stringent you could put one of these in your backyard they wouldn't have any idea that it's an antenna this thing performs flawlessly it does fantastic on 75 and 80 meters it folds up goes in a bag it's stealth it's all the things that you recall us talking about the tw2010 go to transworldantennas.com that's transworldantennas.com and take a look at the 2010, the 4040, the 6060, and now the 8080. If you've always wanted to operate 80 meters, you haven't had the space to do it, this is the opportunity. If you travel, you have an RV, you'd like to take 80 on the road, and you want better performance than a mobile antenna, this is the antenna for you. Go to transworldantennas.com. That's transworldantennas.com. If you like to travel... If you're a camper, if you'd like to take your ham radio hobby with you when you go, you need the Transworld Antennas TW2010L Backpacker Antenna. It's the same exact antenna as the TW2010 Adventurer, with the exception it's been streamlined for the person who likes to camp and travel light. It's the same rugged antenna structure as the TW2010, with the black powder coating and stealth design. We all know the TW2010 is a great permanent or portable antenna, but the TW2010L Backpacker takes portable and emergency operation to an entirely new level. It's especially suited for the amateur operator who loves backpacking, cycling, camping, and makes easy access and quick setup possible for the most extenuating emergencies. TW2010L Backpacker Antenna is available now for a limited time for only $399.95. That's right, $399.95. Pricing includes backpacker, quadrastand, carrying bag, and free shipping in the continental United States through FedEx Ground. That's transworldantennas.com. And now for a limited time, only $399.95. That's transworldantennas.com. Attention radio disclosure listeners. We really need to hear from you. Write us. Go to the website, radiodisclosure.com. That's radiodisclosure.com. And even though the site's not finished, uh, we have a place up there where you can send us an email. We really need to hear from you. No spam. If you, if you write us, you, you will not be turned over to the spam squad. We will not be sending you spam or, or disclosing your email address to anyone. Also, we want to put your name down for some future giveaways. We've got some stuff coming up. We'll be having some drawings. So anyone that writes is going to be eligible for the drawings. We'll have some nice things. We'll be giving away very shortly on Radio Disclosure. Once again, we'd love to hear from you. 
make suggestions of things you'd like to hear and make suggestions about things you don't like. We appreciate all of those comments. Radiodisclosure.com is the website. Go up there and hit the email tab. Send us an email. Radiodisclosure.com. And I thank you so very much in advance. And now on Radio Disclosure, back to our guests. It's Scott and Suzanne Ramsey talking about their book, Aztec, 1948 UFO Crash Hoax or Hidden Truth. And I, I guess my question is, if you can... If you if you can kind of uh, unravel the story, talk about the, or I guess tell the story, you know, from, from what you know, you know, from the beginning and, and and who who saw this, how did they become acquainted with it, uh, you know, what happened in terms of the local people and 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 press and you know how is, how is the government played into it? I'm sure they're involved somewhere. Oh yeah, oh, uh, they're, they're they're knee deep into it. Yeah. Well, basically, the, the story is we've pieced together so far. Uh, the, the two characters, uh, unfortunately, both are deceased now. That I, I focus a lot of attention on is Doug Noland and Bill Ferguson. Uh, both worked for El Paso Oil Company back then. Doug was uh, driving a company truck en route to Bill Ferguson's house. Bill Ferguson was his supervisor at the time. And they were going out to check some oil wells. That whole area out there, the, the Largo Basin, the whole area is is heavy in natural gas and some crude oil. So it's a big gas area. Uh, anyway, Doug was pulling up to Bill Ferguson, his boss's house, and they were going down toward the Bloomfield area. And uh, Bill Ferguson said, I just got a phone call that there is a bad brush fire out on Hart Canyon Road near one of our company drip tank collections. And we really need to get out there quick. The last thing you want is a brush fire near drip tanks. And uh, they got out there a little bit after 5 o'clock in the morning. Some other oil field workers had gotten there just ahead of them. And they assured Bill Ferguson, the, the foreman or supervisor, that the brush fire was in no way, shape, or form going to hurt the drip tanks. It was up on a mesa, east of the mesa. But up on the mesa, when they were checking on the brush fire, they found something that he really needed to look at. And they described it as a large lenticular-shaped object. And uh, well, let me let me ask you this this question: What is lenticular? You're over my head now. <laughs> well, disc, disc, okay. disc shaped, a round yeah. object. Okay, right. Mm-hmm. Okay. But very not a not a wide cross section. All the descriptions we have, it was uh, approximately a hundred feet in diameter. Uh, the best everybody can guess from back then, about twenty-seven to thirty feet tall. So you're 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 really at a thinner cross section if you put that on paper and look at it. Um, basically, other people showed up at the at the scene. Uh, some ranchers that were running cattle out at the time, a local police officer, another police officer from another town that claimed he had tracked it early that morning because it looked wobbling and looked as though it was in trouble. And uh, from there, the story just becomes amazing. I mean, the, the military showed up late morning, early afternoon. The first police officer arriving, uh, who was local to that area, uh, claimed uh, as he got there that the military was already 
uh, informed of this and that they would be there as soon as they could get there and warned the young men to stay off of it, quit climbing on it, and all, you know, all the warnings you'd have to give 19- and 20-year-old kids. And uh, from there, uh, from what we can piece together, it was about a two-week recovery operation where some form of the military, Air Force, Fifth Army Group, whatever combination thereof, uh, removed the craft, and uh, parts were probably, from the best research we can do, taken to Los Alamos which is about 127 miles from the crash site. Well, I, I guess um, my, my question is, is uh, of course, you, you say there was uh, 19, 18-year-old fellows crawling all around on the thing or whatever. They were. You know, what, what was going through the minds of the people that saw it? Did they think it was just some sort of a government-type craft or something like that, or are they thinking immediately extraterrestrial? No, I, Doug Nolan, uh, when we interviewed him back in 2003, uh, was convinced it was ours at first. He, he thought it was one of ours. Yeah, they had seen the newsreels of the flying wings and whatnot. Uh, and I guess uh, as you were walking up to it, it would look something like that, you know, a very you know, thin cross-section aircraft. Uh, Doug described it, no bolts, no seams, no rivet marks, screws, anything, just as though it had been molded out of an aluminum, brushed aluminum pewter-type finish. And and, and all of them, basically, their stories were consistent. You couldn't see the portholes until you're up on the object looking. It was more like a mirrored sunglass type of material. How, How much different did this object appear than um, the the classic scout ship that you see that uh, George Adamski allegedly photographed. Oh, it's been so many years since I saw that picture, I really couldn't compare that. But that, <laughs> to me, looked like a conventional UFO-type thing out of Hollywood that was an aerodynamic brick, if my memory is right. Well, I mean, there's some people that said it was a bird feeder, you know, or a, a, mm-hmm. a chicken brooder or something. I don't know. Uh, but I mean, yeah. I, but no, I, this was very aerodynamic and, like I say, a very thin cross section. We we have artist drawings of it. Uh, matter of fact, uh, there'll be a a reconstructed black and white picture is the cover of our book, so people can get a good look at from descriptions what people said it looked like. Well, I, I just know that the only reason I ask is that the Adamski diagram or photo or whatever had been used. Um. And even this uh, Lazar guy that, that said he worked out at Area 51, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but the diagram, mm-hmm. there, was a, there was an actual model that was out. You could buy it at Walmart. <laughs> testers, yeah, testers came out with it. Yeah. yeah. and, and it's a sport model. Yeah, and it looked, it looked identical uh, to the uh, Adamski ship, except it was maybe, it, it looked like maybe it would have been the newer version, you know, but mm-hmm. <laughs> so many commonalities between the two. Mm-hmm. So I was just wondering if it differed much from that, or if it was. Uh, oh yes, it was. It was. Yeah, it was more frisbee shaped. It was not the big, tall, like I say, Hollywood recollections of what a, a small UFO would look like. Well, yeah, you've got the day the Earth stood still UFO too. I mean, that had yeah, basically, yeah, uh, yeah. That's that's more lenticular. Um. So, anyways, uh, the the military comes in now. How forceful were they at that time? You know, keeping people away from the thing or or, or isolating the area. Did, did they do that, or were they did they just come in routine and uh, 
No, no, no. They came in and in force. They they separated all the the people that were at the the mesa that night or that that day. Uh, individually interviewed them, reminded them of their patriotic uh, duty that this was a classified uh, situation that they they would uh, not talk about it. And ironically, it must have worked because Doug Nolan, when we interviewed him, said that very rarely would he and Bill Ferguson ever talk about it unless they were alone in the truck and it would come up. And uh, Bill, being senior to to Doug, would look at him and say, you know, we, we're, we're, we're not supposed to talk about that. Just... And Doug, Doug said, for crying out loud, Bill, we're in a truck, it's just you and I. And he'd say, I know, but I don't want to talk about it. So it had some powerful effect on these guys. Well, you know, this is this is a subject that that's come up before, and uh, we, we've discussed this on radio a number of times. And that is, you know, there, there are people out there that will tell you that well, it's impossible to keep a secret. You know, the government is uh, is not capable of keeping a secret. Everything eventually leaks out in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. But um, we have other folks that say, well, that's just not true. That um, there are leaks, uh, but there are secrets and. The secrets are kept very well. Mm-hmm. So, seeing the way these guys reacted to it, they, were, they wouldn't even the one fellow didn't even want to discuss it in the privacy of the truck. Now, you kind of wonder: was that because the reality of the situation after seeing what he saw hit so close to home challenged all of his maybe belief system that he didn't want to talk about it, or do you think it was an actual fear of of uh, the government threat stopping him from wanting to discuss it? No, I, I can't answer that because I didn't know Bill Ferguson. But in Doug, Doug Nolan's case, uh, it was it was fear, and it was, and he said they they were very serious. Uh, Ken Far, uh, Ken Farley that we interviewed, he was at the crash site. We found him down uh, retired in Bath Cave, Arizona, and uh, he said he got kind of smart alecky with him at one point and got an M uh, uh, M one Grand. Uh, in the stomach. So, you know, he said they were very serious. Do, do you think do you think at any point in time do you do you believe I mean I and this is total conjecture but from everything you've seen I mean, after researching though you've got to get a feel for things. I mean, you you mm-hmm. you, you have probably um, you know, a a gut reaction to things based on collective information over a period of time, talking to people, reading things. Maybe right. maybe your opinion is is even to the point where you wouldn't necessarily be able to put it all down on paper, but but you still have this gut feeling about things. Oh I, sure. I, I guess my question is: do you, do you think the government has ever killed anyone over a flying saucer? <laughs> um, I think it's serious enough that uh, that would that would be an option. But I mean, do you think do you think anyone's died over one yet because they either leaked or they were fear. They were afraid the person was going to say something to the wrong person, or um, you know, I, I, I've often wondered about that. Or are they just simply? No, I, yeah, I don't know. I've really never, never really thought about it in that context. But certainly, at the level of secrecy UFOs are, I would think that uh, it, it would it would not be out of the realm of possibility. Well, do you ever? Are you ever concerned or afraid uh, for you and Suzanne as you? research this stuff that you might uncover the wrong thing 
know, and, no, I'm always hoping we uncover the wrong thing. Well, I know, but if, <laughs> you know, if you if you uncover the wrong thing, that wouldn't that make you a, wouldn't that make you a target? No, I don't think so. You don't think so. So you don't, you, no, you, don't I, you don't think the government cover up is as diabolical as some folks peep, maybe want to make you believe it is? Oh no, I I think it is, but I think that they're so good about keeping secrets that people don't believe they can keep that uh, the chances of of us stumbling on that document are slim to none. I mean, we have thousands of documents. I mean, we have a whole office full of documents that we've. We've gotten over the years through Freedom of Information Act, uh, Air Force, Army, CIA, uh, Air Force OSI, Air Force CID, FBI, CIA. You name the alphabet company, we've got <laughs> There is every every one I just mentioned has information on Aztec. I, I, including the FDIC. FBI? I said no. I said including oh. the FDIC. I was just oh, I'm sure. making yeah. a joke. <laughs> no, you broke up for a second, so I missed that part. Um, um, but, yeah, you know, so that also intrigued us to keep going. If it was a hoax like the Air Force wrote it off to be publicly to people like me that tried to research it, why did they keep ongoing files on it for years? And I'll give you an example. I'll give you a really good example. Uh, September 1950, I actually wanted to have the document in front of me tonight, and when we had our miscue, I I didn't put them on the table here. Uh, The FBI, the Army Counterintelligence Division, and the Air Force Office of Special Investigation, the three groups set up a sting operation in downtown Denver, at the Melwin Hotel, at the Edelweiss Bar, Lobby Bar. They say Lobby Bar in the report, but research Frank Warren and I and another gentleman did. It looks like the Edelweiss Bar was actually next door, but that's beside the point. Uh, They set up a sting operation to get a gentleman that was selling photos of the Aztec crash to a reporter from the Baltimore Sun. We're going to take a break on Radio Disclosure. And we'll be back with Scott and Suzanne Ramsey and their new book, Aztec 1948 UFO Crash, Hoax or Hidden Truth. We'll be back right after this. The 75 and 80 meter band has always presented somewhat of a problem for many radio amateurs. The problem, antenna space. There just isn't anywhere to put up an antenna. Many places that people are living today. If you're retired, you're in a high-rise. Guess what? We got the answer to your problem. You can take the new Transworld Antennas 8080 and put it on your balcony. This thing is stealth. Nobody will have any idea what it is. If you live in a in, a, in an area where the 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 antenna restrictions are real stringent you could put one of these in your backyard they wouldn't have any idea that it's an antenna this thing performs flawlessly it does fantastic on 75 and 80 meters it folds up goes in a bag it's stealth it's all the things that you recall us talking about the tw2010 go to transworldantennas.com that's transworldantennas.com and take a look at the 2010, the 4040, the 6060, and now the 8080. 
If you've always wanted to operate 80 meters, you haven't had the space to do it, this is the opportunity. If you travel, you have an RV, you'd like to take 80 on the road, and you want better performance in a mobile antenna, this is the antenna for you. Go to transworldantennas.com. That's transworldantennas.com. Have you been looking for a place to put a website? Have you thought about putting your own website up or possibly you've got your own right now and you're not real happy? The name to think about and remember is Tux-Support.com. Tux like Tuxedo, the little penguin, the uh, mascot for Lennox, the Lennox operating system. Tux-Support.com. Just remember that name. If you're looking for a website for your amateur radio club, your church, your organization, your business, or even a personal site, you need a place to put that site, and you want a simple way to put it together and maintain it, one word or one company to remember, that's tux-support.com. Tux-support.com. That's T-U-X-S-U-P-P-O-R-T. Tux-support.com, the only name you need to know when it comes to your website. Since the beginning of time and across the history of radio broadcasting, there's only one radio station that has ever earned a full-length documentary dedicated totally and completely to its rise to a pinnacle never before achieved by any radio station and its fall. This is a story of what happened when the most legendary programming genius of all time takes the reins of an obscure Canadian radio station in the small city of Windsor, Canada and creates a radio legend that rocked the Motor City, the USA, and half a continent. That does it for Big Tom Rivers, 1971. Hank O'Neill starts a brand new year next. CKLW. For the last time this year, I will say to you, Rock on, Bubba! Ladies and gentlemen, the beat goes on. CKLW, the Motor City. 2020 news guys, they were disc jockeys without music. Bum, bum, bum. And everybody knew that something was going to happen. You knew something was going to happen. Motor City Mayor Roman Cribs has a mad on for an unidentified rapist. A butcher, knife-wielding pervert cornered a secretary in the elevator at Detroit City County Building and rode her to a vacant seventh floor and proceeded to sexually assault her. Guards are now being considered for future surveillance of the crime-stained seventh floor. Lee Marshall, 2020 News. Now, Markham Street Productions takes you there as you relive the rise and fall of the big hckw the motor city you can now own your own copy of this new dvd documentary radio revolution the rise and fall of the big eight from markham street productions the special edition dvd of this award-winning feature-length documentary includes extra scenes outtakes photos and special features radio revolution the Rise and Fall of the Big Eight is now available for only $29.95 plus shipping. Go to RadioRevolutionDVD.com. That's RadioRevolutionDVD.com. Order now while supply lasts. RadioRevolutionDVD.com. That's RadioRevolutionDVD.com. And the hits just keep on coming. CKLW. 
And now on Radio Disclosure, back to our guests. It's Scott and Suzanne Ramsey talking about their book, Aztec, 1948 UFO Crash, Hoax or Hidden Truth? That kind of amazed me. So These are the same groups of people that had written it off by 1948, 49, when Scully's book came out in 50, and yet nine months later have a sting operation going to get black and white photos of, in their own words, the Aztec UFO uh, black and white photos. You know, I've often wondered sometime if the way to smoke the government out on this stuff... Is to not circulate a rumor that you have something that you don't actually have, mm-hmm. and then see what they do. I, I've you know I've thought about that. I've wondered if anyone's ever done that at all. <laughs> um, I, we have been told over the years that there are photos of the craft that exist, but you haven't Numer- seen. We, we have heard that numerous times, but you haven't seen one. No. Mm-mm. Well, maybe maybe somebody listening <laughs> will know somebody that knows somebody that will. No, I'm pretty sure I know where they are, but getting my hands on them is another thing. But uh, when you hear that from more than one source from different parts of the country, I, I believe I, you know that's something you don't hear about Roswell. You don't hear somebody say, "Hey, there are pictures of this." Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I guess the thing is, is that, uh, I'm now, well, let me ask you this. Can you say where you think they are, or is that something you'd rather not? You'd rather not? I think we'll save that for a rainy day. <laughs> a rainy day, okay. Yeah. But um, I guess my, my what I'm saying is that they are not somewhere where you could safely retrieve them if you wanted to, or demand through, you know, Freedom of Information Act or something like that, that they be turned over to you. They're obviously... Yeah, I, I believe they're in individual hands. Okay, well, then that would make it even... Well, I mean, obviously, if there was a UFO recovered, the military or whatever powers to be, the government would have photographed that they would be somewhere with the, the reports on it, whether it be Roswell, or Aztec, whatever. Uh, but it, it, I believe that the the story that there are photos of it are very credible. What what do you think is the the most the most sensitive thing when you've tried to get documents? Where and what kind is it that you run into the, that where you, there's the most resistance? Where they you know you really you know they they really give you the roughest way to go. Um, lately, uh, Army Counterintelligence Division um, they claimed that the 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 response going back to the photos uh, that were being sold at the Melvin Hotel in, in downtown Denver, they claimed the response from that report, it came from Air Force headquarters, Wright Patterson. There was also a series of correspondence from the FBI. They are waiting for the response back from Army Counterintelligence Division. I went to the Army Counterintelligence Division as recently as last month, showed them all the documents we had, and said, okay, where is the, your response back to the FBI and the Air Force? And they said those records have been destroyed. We don't have them. Gave it to me in writing. Gave, you sent me a Dear John letter. Now, were the records destroyed because of some... Uh, uh, they, they have a new law now. After 50 years, they can purge their files and destroy what they don't deem is, is important anymore. So, in other words, it's it's very possible they were just destroyed out of ignorance and not necessarily because they were covering something up. Oh, I, 
don't believe they were destroyed at all. They're not going to destroy documents between CID, OSI, and FBI uh, over and over. First of all, a sting operation, and one that involves at least three government agencies. Well, I, I tend to agree with you, but I can honestly say that if it was destroyed out of stupidity, it really wouldn't surprise me. Well, that could be. You know, but I, I don't think those documents would be in the normal files of other CID cases. In other words, they may go to the box and say, oh, they're not here, they must have been destroyed, or the box where those documents should be have all been destroyed. But don't forget now, there is a paper trail of everything in archival documents. And that's what, in my appeal, I've asked for. You don't take a report from the Air Force and just, destroy it, and then put a little note card in the box that says these have been destroyed, they were okayed by uh, Ted Randall on this date and signed off by Scott Ramsey. That's not the way it works. As a matter of fact, I, Suzanne and I have some good examples of that. matter of fact, I have one in front of me right now. It has nothing to do with UFOs. But have you ever seen an Air Force checklist? I know your listening audience, you probably are, you have it ex-Air Force or current Air Force people, look at how many things need signed off before an aircraft takes off. The crew chief, the mechanic, the refueling people. All those reports, they don't get thrown away. They are archived. And the most interesting archive is that for Air Force is Montgomery, uh, Alabama, at Maxwell Air Force Base. And if a document gets destroyed, there's a paper trail of why the document got destroyed. So just by saying, oh, hey, Scott, those documents are destroyed, that's not good enough. I want to see the the chain of command of paperwork leading up to the destruction of that document. And they usually do an overview, a historical overview of what was in the documents that were destroyed. Well, I, I guess you know. I, I you know. I understand, I understand what you're saying. But the thing that pops through my mind is after you know close encounters and uh, uh, all the all the various movies and, and, and television. The the X Files is an example. Mm-hmm. You know, all, all these things. Um, I would think by now. I mean, what what would constitute the the government being so hell bent? I'm covering this stuff over and, and not letting it out. I mean, I, I don't understand what would drive it. I mean, we've had, I mean, I, I, the polls that are out there say that the, the majority of people actually believe that UFOs exist, okay? Sure. Oh, um, yeah. So if they already believe it, then what's in it for the United States government to continue to not disclose any of this stuff? What What's in it for them? How What are they controlling? First, they'd have to admit for 62 years they've been telling one of the biggest lies in the history of this country that they didn't have anything on them and they had no interest in them and then come back and say, oh, by the way, we've kept that from the American public. I, I don't know in any time, I'm 51 years of age, I don't know any time going back in my memory, you know, I grew up with the Kennedy assassination, the, the Watergate scandal, 
Jimmy Carter as president, Ronald Reagan, the Gulf War. There's never been a perfect time that our government, everything is so stable that we say, okay, folks, we've been lying to you for 60-some years. No, I mean, I... We, I, we, I, we have enough instability right now than to, for the, the, the entire government and military powers to come out and say, oh, gee, boy, we've been pulling one over on you people for a long time. Plus, Ted, look at the technology that could have come out of a retrieval of these craft. You've got a disc object 30, 50, 60, 100 feet in diameter, uh, incredible speeds that are tracked on radar, uh, take off and disappear with a blink of an eye. Hey, you've got your perfect stealth bomber if you can ever figure it out, or fighter plane or whatever. Well, I, I guess, I, and I and I follow that, and, and I guess I'm one, I can't help but believe this, and, and uh, th- there's something odd about the technology curve over the last few years. I mean, look at where we've gone from, or where we, where we came from, and where we are now, and what is commonplace. Now, Mm-hmm. I, I made mention the other day, and, I, and maybe it makes me sound like an old fogey, but I was in, well, if I was in high school, if someone walked up to me with a pocket PC and showed me moving pictures on this tiny screen, <laughs> you know, and being able to communicate with somebody across town or across the world, uh, being able to bring up a website in China while I'm sitting, right. you know, at uh, at, at, at a, a location here in the U.S. and all the you know a built-in camera you know i can shoot a picture and email it to you instantly you know i mean it's like you look at this thing and um you know it's it's like if someone would have showed that to me while i was in high school i would have said alien technology undoubtedly mm-hmm. alien technology we ain't got nothing like this you know right where did it all come from i mean this tiny little thing i mean we had the Dick Tracy cartoon, and he had his little walkie-talkie watch. You know, and that's that's even obsolete now, isn't it? Yeah, it's terribly obsolete. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, you know, and, and I, you know, like my, you know, I I, I, I turn on my notebook and 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 I, and I have an audio editor there and a video editor. Uh, the 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 thing can be anything. It's a word processor. You know, I mean, you know, it's a it's a it's a photography studio for God's sake. Sure. I mean, you put Photoshop. Yeah. Uh, the, the latest and greatest Photoshop and, and all that stuff. I mean, you, there isn't anything hardly you cannot do, you know, with a computer. I mean, a whole a whole radio station is is being run on a single computer today. I mean, my, my son is a, is a, is an engineer in, in the TV, doing dealing with TV. All the audio and video editing is done on 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 hard drive and whatnot. But I mean, this didn't exist. I mean. So I, you kind of wonder. It's like you know, did did we did we really invent all this, or did or did we catch on to it? Did we reverse engineer it? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't want to sound like a crazy person, but I, I look at what we have, and, and it just kind of you know, it makes me wonder. You know, did we? Are we really yeah. that smart? Did we really come up with all this stuff so quickly? Well, yeah, Suzanne and I have been researching uh, a company, a little tiny company down there in Texas by the name of Texas Instruments. Mm-hmm. And uh, in one of the the historical things I was reading, and I, I probably don't have this 100% right, so bear with me, but when the handheld calculator came out in 1974, and I remember I was in high school then, it has more memory and capabilities than the Apollo rocket command modules. And that was only 1969. Well, that's so in interesting. five years, 
we've gone from in five years, sixty nine to seventy four. We went from that little what we thought, you know, we landed on the moon in sixty nine. We thought that was huge technology. But the first handheld calculators that we had in high school had more capabilities than the Apollo missions. Yeah, it's a little rough going down. Yeah. <laughs> a little rough going down. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, get back to that. I don't think that uh, we can point a finger at everything and say alien technology, alien technology. Um, this is a pretty sharp, bright country with a lot of good, hardworking people. And uh, you look at other uh, first-class countries, England, Germany, whatnot, Australia. Technology has been a, a leading thing with a lot of good engineers all this time. You know, I guess you could point a conspiracy finger and uh, and say everything we play with today is alien technology, but I'm I'm not ready to go that far. Well, I I, I guess I I just have a rough way. I we how you know? Let, let's go back to Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bell and mm-hmm. uh, that particular period of time, and then you watch the timeline, and all of a sudden there is one point. When you're talking about Texas Instruments, when you're talking about Silicon Valley, or Silicon Valley, whichever way you prefer, uh, it was just all of a sudden, it was like an explosion. It's like literally here, out of nowhere, comes all this stuff, you know. And um, so, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I kind of have a question about that. Now, maybe if you worked in that technology, then you'd know, yeah, you'd have right. inside knowledge as to how it all did develop. But I, as an outsider, it looks like voodoo. You know, <laughs> well, I'm a big Nikki Tesla fan. Had been since I was a kid, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of things. And, and also, I make a living in the electrical industry. As far as we manufacture magnet wire for electric motors, transformers, generators, uh, and you go back and you look at the Tesla designs, late 1800s, early 1900s, late 1800s, at the time frame when he was working with George Westinghouse. And you look at what we have today, and Tesla had those designs in in theory and in practice back in the early 1900s. Okay. So, you know, it a lot of people didn't take him serious, but he had them on paper. Well, one thing that, that, that Tesla had a very unusual grasp of, and, and that was resonance. What resonance meant, what it was, mm-hmm. what it did, what you could do with something. Right, and I understand he had some sort of a little device. I don't know if it was mechanical or electronic or whatever that he could put on a wall of a building. And in one case, uh, in one case, almost brought the building completely down uh, from this little thing. You know, I, and I, I don't, I don't know. That may be folklore, you know, but I, I somehow <laughs> I don't think so. Looking at some of Tesla's designs and some of the things, but he, I mean, he talked about pulling energy out of the air. You know, being able to just pull energy right out of the air. Um, and um, and there, there and there's a lot of weird things that uh, folks can't explain. I mean, uh, being in the amateur radio ranks, I mean, I've seen antennas uh, strung up between two trees, and on a sunshiny day, they would knock you right flat on the floor. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, well, you know, what was that all about? Well, mm-hmm. let me. Let's. Uh, I was going to say, why don't you give uh, Suzanne a chance to get in here and kind of uh, share some of her thoughts and ideas about this this upcoming 
uh, book. And okay. uh, maybe she could tell you how I dragged her into the whole thing. Uh oh. <laughs> okay. Literally. Okay. All right. I'll turn it over to Suzanne at this point. All right. Here you go, Ted. Suzanne Ramsey. Hello. Hello there, and how are you today? Just great. How about you? I'm I'm getting along fine. This is very, you know, this is really a compelling story. I mean, this is like something, uh, uh, you know, it's 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 you know, actually, to tell you the truth, the way he tells it, um, it, it sounds a whole. It's got like more substance to it almost than than the Roswell thing, you know, because you hear so many folks talk about Roswell, and then you scratch your head, you wonder, you know, but but this, I mean, he's coming up with some things that are. So uh, why don't you shed some light? Tell you know you've heard everything he's had to say. Why don't you talk a little bit and, and add to what he's already the add to some of the the features he's already uh, gone down or passed? A couple things that kind of stand out in my mind um, is and, and you said that it is a very compelling story. It is and and um, although he's my husband, I'm I'm. Very thankful, and, and I told him again the other night, part of the reason I was attracted to him, one of many reasons, but was that I appreciated, he was on my radio show as a guest, and, and I appreciated the fact that he did such a good job um, in researching what he was talking about, and he wasn't trying to convince anyone. He had factual information. He did um, the research and presented it well, and I appreciated that very, very much. It wasn't I'm just really not fond of somebody that's just trying to to um, do something for ego purpose or to convince me of something when they can't prove it to me. And um, and so I was I appreciated that very much. As I've gotten to know him, I better understand where that comes from. Um, as a little boy, his family they were from Pittsburgh, and uh, they would go down to the Outer Banks of North Carolina along the beach every summer for a couple weeks for almost all of his life um, growing up. Excuse me. And what they would do is rent a little beach house and just stay there. And his dad would take the boys, uh, a friend of his would come down with him and his sister, and and they would beach come, just walk along the beach. Well, I don't know how familiar you or the listeners are, but the Outer Banks is probably the most heavily populated sunken ships of all eras ever. Um, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ships that are sunk in there. And um, so when there would be turbulent storms, chunks of ships would come up. And, I mean, we have a house full, like a museum of things that they've collected and found, and, and so does his mom. And and um, what his dad would require them to do would be um, to drag the items back. One of them, like, is a big hatch cover. There's Oh, gosh, all kinds of things, just neat little things, little treasures. And he would require them to go and document and research during their vacation as to where these items came from and what type of ship, what was the era, you know, information about the ship. And so I think that as a young boy, Scott had the opportunity to learn how to go about researching things on a very, very deep level. And as I've seen how Aztec has unfolded, as he said originally, arrogantly, he said he thought it would probably take about six months to um, uh, wrap wrap the package up, and, you know, this is 20-some years later. But it's amazing when you go into a very deep level of research. 
and you make sure that if somebody said something or if you find something, that you're able to document that multiple ways. Um, what that does is it does take time, but it gives you a tremendous foundation and it gives you a really good story. And so it's not full of a lot of holes. Now, you know, we don't have the the craft, and that's a bummer. <laughs> we probably never will have the bummer, but or a lug nut or anything like that. But there are some really interesting people throughout the United States in many, many capacities, as Scott referred to earlier, that, that have seen and been involved with this, and, have, and he has a lot of the documentation on it. But let me tell you, it, it is not an easy process, and um, the government did a very, very good job in trying to, to um, keep a lot of this hidden, and, and I think Scott would be the first one to tell you that that was for um, a lot of our benefits, really. Now, we can say we disagree, we'd like to know more about it, obviously, or we wouldn't be doing this research, but um, but I can see from their standpoint that they have had a difficult position um, trying to gain technology, not necessarily knowing where the craft came from, but trying to give themselves up, leg up during wars and things, um, and and so they've needed to do that. And so, but I tell you what, I... I uh, I'm amazed at how much time in the course of life that you can spend doing something like this. It's a, it's a big task. And, and unlike most people's, I mean, we lead pretty average lives. We have chickens, we have animals, we have, you know, we have jobs, we have, we have normal lives. But at least once a day, over dinner or breakfast or something, we're talking UFOs and not in general, but about Aztecs. So this is a part of our everyday life. Well, I, I guess the the thing uh, I'll ask you the same question that I asked him. What do you think separates this crash from the Roswell crash? How? What are the major major differences that you see between the two situations? I think the craft. Well, the fact that the craft was intact with very little damage. Um, they had bodies, and the bodies, although they were charred, were um, intact. Um, multiple bodies. They had um, some good witnesses, witnesses from a variety of walks of life that knew nothing of each other. And I think that's important because um, you're probably familiar with this, Ted, that when you interview someone, and let's say whether for its legal purposes or someone has been through a difficult situation or whatever, and you want to get accurate information, you certainly don't want to give them leading questions. You don't want to try and... um, interject your preconceived ideas. It has to be a very open mind. You have to go in and ask with questions that are going to lead them, or not, excuse me, you have to ask questions that are not going to lead them. They just need to tell you the story. And what we found was how many people that didn't know each other had not only similar stories, but things that no one else knew of. It was never written about. It's never been anything else. And so that was very, that's been very exciting. And I don't know that it asked, or excuse me, Roswell has exactly that. Um, oh, I'm just trying to think of what else. I think those are the big things for me. Okay, well, they had, you, you said they had bodies. And, and you know, I guess one, one thing, you know, you know, he told us the story, but there's still, so many missing pieces at this point. Of course, it would take a long time to tell the whole story from beginning to end. Right. But um, you landed on something. You said there were burned bodies. Mm-hmm. 
Now, does anyone have any idea, does anyone have any part of the story where they talk about what happened to those bodies, where were they taken to, or was the or was the recovery so secretive and was the government so covert about it that nobody knows anything beyond the fact that it was just cleaned up? Um, I don't I don't think we have it ever run across anything that documents about the bodies, has it? No, it's only been the witnesses that have talked about um the witnesses into Doctor G too? Uh, the witnesses and and Dr. G. Dr. G is someone that um, originally broke the story to Frank Scully. And um, they're a group of scientists. It's a collective group. Dr. G is a generic term for a collective group of nine scientists that did the research on it. And they spoke of the bodies. But um, um, now, and you know, one, th- one thing that you run into when you work with anything in the government is, as, as you kind of alluded to, is that it is so compartmentalized that, you know, someone could be working on the landing gear of a craft and someone else could be working on the bodies or someone else could be working on the, on the windows or the, uh, the, the metal that it's made of and they would never know anything of each other. You know, there, there's just, so focused on what they're doing and compartmentalized that they don't even have an opportunity to sit down and brainstorm. Um, you know, like if we were going to sit down and do a project together, we'd sit down and say, well, Ted, what part are you going to do and how is that going to interact with my part? That's not the way it works. And so um, we we have not come across information about that with bodies. Well, you know, I guess the thing is, is government being government, that they probably would want to separate projects out and then keep total silence a, and, and no communication between the various people that were working on things, lest two or three people get together and put together the puzzle. Yep. And I tell you what, over the years, occasionally, by accident, things like that have happened, and that's some of the things that, that we write about. Um, but it's, it's um, people that were in the military that just happened to be there and just at the same time, and then in another part of the world bump into each other or you know and and it's amazing how that information comes out and and um like you said if if they kept the people together you would run into problems in fact a lot of the groups that work on these type of projects which you'll find is they go in they do the project and then they all get shipped off to different ends of the world so that they can't communicate together you see that uh i i guess the other thing i was going to ask about it and that is do you think that the government uses any sort of brainwashing techniques to keep people, in other words, to try to, or, or I mean, or, or maybe they have drugs or something to suppress memories? Do you think anything like that goes on at all? You know, Ted, there's there's lots of things that a person hears about. Um, the only thing, and I think you'll find if you ever sit and, and listen to Scott and I lecture or when you read the book, there's all kinds of things that we hear, but if we can't document it, you know, it doesn't exist as far as we were concerned. I'm not saying it doesn't, but I don't I don't have anything to prove that. So, you know. We're going to take a break on Radio Disclosure, and we'll be back with Scott and Suzanne Ramsey and their new book, Aztec 1948 UFO Crash, Hoax or Hidden Truth. We'll be back right after this. The 75 and 80 meter band has always presented somewhat of a problem for many radio amateurs. The problem, antenna space. 
There just isn't anywhere to put up an antenna. Many places that people are living today. If you're retired, you're in a high rise. Guess what? We got the answer to your problem. You can take the new Transworld antennas 8080 and put it on your balcony. This thing is stealth. Nobody will have any idea what it is. If you live in a in a in an area where the 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 antenna restrictions are real stringent, you could put one of these in your backyard. They wouldn't have any idea that it's an antenna. This thing performs flawlessly. It does fantastic on 75 and 80 meters. It folds up, goes in a bag. It's stealth. It's all the things that you recall us talking about the TW2010. Go to transworldantennas.com. That's transworldantennas.com. And take a look at the 2010, the 4040, the 6060, and now the 8080. If you've always wanted to operate 80 meters, you haven't had the space to do it, this is the opportunity. If you travel, you have an RV, you'd like to take 80 on the road, and you want better performance than a mobile antenna, this is the antenna for you. Go to transworldantennas.com. That's transworldantennas.com. Attention Radio Disclosure listeners. We really need to hear from you. Write us. Go to the website, radiodisclosure.com. That's radiodisclosure.com. And even though the site's not finished, uh, we have a place up there where you can send us an email. We really need to hear from you. No spam. If you, if you write us, you, you will not be turned over to the spam squad. We will not be sending you spam or, or disclosing your email address to anyone. Also, we want to put your name down for some future giveaways. We've got some stuff coming up. We'll be having some drawings. So anyone that writes is going to be eligible for the drawings. We'll have some nice things. We'll be giving away very shortly on Radio Disclosure. Once again, we'd love to hear from you. Make suggestions of things you'd like to hear. And make suggestions about things you don't like. We appreciate all of those comments. Radiodisclosure.com is the website. Go up there and hit the email tab. Send us an email. Radiodisclosure.com. And I thank you so very much in advance. And now on Radio Disclosure, back to our guests. It's Scott and Suzanne Ramsey talking about their book, Aztec, 1948 UFO Crash Hoax. Or hidden truth. Sometimes we're, we're pretty research bound. So <laughs> sometimes I think we get we get. I think sometimes we get too hung up on exact documentation. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's one thing I've learned: the older I get, the more I begin to see and realize there really is no such thing as official. Okay, I mean, it, you know, the the people at the top of the corporation are just as just as inept as the people at the bottom of the ladder. Okay, I mean, it's it, the ineptness right. runs all the way through. There is no advantage in any particular thing. Right, I agree. <clears throat> and, I, and I guess the thing that, that I'm looking at, it's like when we talk about documentation, now this is kind of off the beaten path, but I'll just mention it because I think it enters into the same arena. Um, uh, I was given a, uh, a Zune. This is the Microsoft version of the iPod uh, player as a Christmas gift. It worked two weeks and quit. And uh, so I I took it back to well, the store they bought it from just closed down. So I called Microsoft, and they said, well, do you have the receipt? I said, no, I don't. I, I, I didn't purchase it, but I've got the serial number. Doesn't matter. If you don't have the receipt, 
mail it back to Microsoft for a hundred bucks, they'll fix it. Okay, needless to say, I would never buy another Zune under any circumstances. <laughs> okay. right, I would right. never buy one. But the point is, is everything hinges on the paperwork. If you don't have that receipt, that Zune player doesn't exist as far as they're concerned. Right. And I understand. And I, and I think a lot of times, I think people are the same way when it comes to these kind of things. And that is, if you don't have the actual first-hand documentation and of course then how far do you carry that is an eyewitness credible enough no no you have to have a picture well you know i mean all i'm saying is is we we've we've pushed that envelope so far that i think we almost require too much documentation in order to justify something that we really and truly know is true or we at least know that it's legitimate i agree but let's let's look at it one other way that in terms of this particular topic, we are asking people to believe something that is literally out of this world. And they have, since most people, since they were small children, raised to believe that these things don't, don't exist. And so to ask someone to believe something that is so far out of their normal realm. As I said earlier, my husband and I, this is a topic of our household on a regular basis. It isn't most people's. No. And it isn't. Now, you can say, and I don't know how old you are. Are you, do you mind saying? How well, old you are? Well, let, let, let's put it this way. I'm, I'm over 40. Is that okay, close? Is that's that all clo- I need to know. Okay. All right. And, and probably a lot of your audience is over 40. But we have seen in recent years where you'll see, um, you know, UFOs or aliens or things like that depicted, and it's sci-fi and, you know, all these topics. But go back to the 50s and the 40s, and that was not the case. Now, 50s, I take that back because that's when it started to become popular. But even then, it was not an everyday course of, of talk. And so I think... To ask someone to believe something that they would not normally believe or understand, you have to go that extra degree. So I agree with what you're saying. And, you know, there are a lot of things I believe in and I feel real strongly about. And I don't have to have proof that they exist. But if we are asking people to really believe that this is legitimate, then we have to do that. And that's why we, meaning my husband and I, have taken this task on. And... You know, it's been out of our own pocket. We've had no assistance, you know, in terms of monetarily or anything else. It is a big commitment. And believe me, vacation time and and things, money we could be spending elsewhere. Um, And it isn't because we'll reap anything from it. It's the fact that there's a passion that we have to prove this. And so... um, it's, it, like I said, it's hard to ask somebody to believe something if you can't prove it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, but, but what I see, I see a lot of, of what we get into, and I've had a chance to meet a couple of people that kind of made me really scratch my head. Um, we went to a, a little conference up in uh, uh, near Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and I met, uh, what's the guy's name, uh, Joe Nickel. Are, are, are you familiar with him? I'm terrible with names, so please forgive me. All right. Well, he's a, he's a, he's supposed to be like a professional debunker, you know. But if you used his standards, here's what would happen: you know, you're getting ready to build a building in the downtown area of a city, 
and the city council says, well, before we're going to approve the uh, the contractor's uh, you know the the construction permit or whatever that it has to be um we don't want we don't want you playing around with any wires inside of this building until you show us electricity now if you can show us electricity we'll allow those wires to be placed in that building in other words to me i i see it getting almost to that point yeah well i don't i don't it isn't i disagree with you it's just that i also (laughs) realize that we are asking people to believe something that they have been told is not possible. And in the average person, now, if you're into the topic, that's a very different story. And, you know, we, we have friends that are into the story and are into the topic and friends that aren't and family and friends. But, um, you know, if you're asking someone to believe something, you almost have to show it to them. And um, I think that that's where raising the awareness for the general public. Again, not the small group of people that already believe, but for the general public, you almost have to go that extra degree. But according to surveys that have been taken and polls that have been taken, the majority of the people in the United States believe that we're being visited from other planets. Yeah, but I'm going to say something about that poll. Um, You're in the communication area. You know in terms of this with media and things, I don't know how how what the criteria for that poll was. I'm not saying it's inaccurate, but I don't know what the criteria for that was. And I don't also know if that means that, um, do you think that we've been visited? What does that mean? Who's come? How often do they come? Because a lot of people, when you bring up the topic, in fact, when somebody will say to me, well, you know, what type of research do you and your husband do? If I can't sit down and describe to them what it is we're doing, I'll usually say historical research. Now, it's not that I'm ashamed or anything about that. Heck, I'm very, very proud of the work. But if I can't sit down and explain to them, because the first thing when you say UFOs, you can just see people's panic on their face. Or you can, be like, you can be like Stanton Friedman that insists on using the term flying saucer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's a Stan thing, that's for sure. But do you know where I'm going with that? Oh, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, you, you, so I, I agree. I know I've heard those polls, and, and I understand what you're saying. It's, but I, I also think when you, when you observe people, you have to go about it and, and educate people, not just dump on and, ex- and expect that they, they um, already understand or know to a certain level. You know? Well, well, well as, as much work as you folks put into this, and obviously you put a lot of work into it, a lot of dedication and a lot of time, uh, and you're just two people. I mean, so you can only accomplish so much. Um, my, my question is, though, is, I guess, is what, uh, what evidence... Do you think it would take, what would be the smoking gun that would just absolutely make it unquestionable and, and make, make the government have to, have to come forward and come clean? What, 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 what do you think that thing would be? And do you think we'll ever achieve that? Scott might have an answer for that. I, I personally don't. I can't, you know, I could theorize and say, well, this might happen or that might happen or, or this might do it. But, and I also don't know what it would take to fully convince people anyway. You know, all the documentation in the world, we're still not going to, you know, make a dent in it. But, well, I, I guess the other thing is, you know, okay, we turn on a television set and you've got the UFO files and you have, uh, 
<laughs> you, know, you have the X-Files and uh, you've got, you know, all the movies, you know. I mean, we've already accepted the fact that we're travel. We can travel at, at warp speed and, um, you know, people use the, the Star Trek logo or uh, logo, the uh, terminology and, uh, right. and different words and whatnot. I mean, in, in our in our minds, in our minds, we, we believe that uh, at some point in time, we're going to have transporters, you know. And, and we, you know, and these things are have become commonly accepted. In other words, it's like, you know, after the after the X Files hit and Close Encounters of the first, of, of the third kind. And what what are some of the other movies? I, my my mind's blanking out. But we, right, E. T. You know, and different movies. Yeah, uh, Independence Day. You know, I mean, Independence Day. You know, yeah. We have been so bombarded with this stuff that yeah, I think but, I, I think I, I, I question ahead. I question in terms of that is a sector of the public. Now we're interested in it so we see that and it's a positive thing for us but i i question if that is really that open of knowledge i don't know if i'm making sense on that yeah because you um, could also you could also draw the parallel and say well yeah we've had all look at all the king kong movies that we had and so now do people believe in King Kong, you know? <laughs> there's a thought. You know, I, I think that there's, it, again, it's not that I'm shooting down what you're saying, but I do think that, um, I think the awareness has been raised. And I think that there are different versions of ufology and, and how some people are more into the New Age, some people are more into the research. Um, and I think that there's the general public that, as you said, may think, well, there's, you know, I'd be silly to think that I'm the most intelligent creature, you know, in the galaxy. But um, much more than that, I don't know. And I think well, a lot I think... of these people, when they see movies and things, that they're sometimes entertained and they enjoy that, enjoy thinking of those type of things. But I don't know how much, and I, and I hope they do, but I don't know how much they really do, the general public. Well, I, I guess the thing of it is, is there's a big difference, and that is it's, the majority may believe in their heart. They'll say, "Well, yeah, I think something's going on." You know, I believe. I believe there's something out there. You know, but right. then when it starts getting really, really close to home, <laughs> yeah, I think you've hit the head. You know, I then, think you've then hit right in the head. Then the belief system is like, "Whoa, what do I do with all this? How do I handle this?" You know. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, now t- tell me something that um, I guess I want to say. Talk to the audience a little bit here, and tell me some of the things that you discovered that surprised you about this uh, about this Aztec uh, crash in your in your research uh, and, and putting this book together Scott's going to be able to enlighten you a lot more on that because he's been doing it a lot longer but I can tell you from my personal standpoint let's see the things that I have felt enlightened on um, some interesting little notes I guess here and there that I've I've found I've been um, one of the witnesses um, it it's hard to imagine because I'm not that old. You know, you can watch a film or you can read in a history book, but but what life was like when this incident happened in 1948? You're out in the middle of rural New Mexico. Um, heck, I'm from there, so you know it's 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 pretty rural still. Um, it's a high desert and not heavy population, beautiful area, but. Um, there's not not a heavy population, and there at that time there were even fewer and fewer cars and not a lot of phones and and things. And one of the witnesses' statement was, 
Um, he was about 19. And when he saw the helicopters coming in to see the, uh, to the military helicopters coming in, he said he wasn't sure which was more amazing to him, the helicopters or, or the saucer, because uh, helicopters had just been introduced to the general public. That gives you a whole different framework and where we've come and how far we've come and where life is at now and where it was then. You know, it's something that's commonplace now. I mean, to me, the fact of seeing a craft would just knock my socks off. I, mean, I don't even know what I would say. Because, but we have so many other stimulants that kind of wash it down for us a little bit. You know, we've, we're familiar with helicopters and all types of different planes and and things. So that was something that was, I think, very an interesting thing. Um, it's it's fascinating to me about um, the caliber and ability of people and talents of people that were used to um, work on this craft and to try and get technology from the craft and take it apart and and to help us to benefit from the craft. Um, my gosh, uh, Scott has spent has spent extensive time researching those folks and isolating and, and pinning down who they were. And they're fascinating people, the most brilliant of brilliant in the world, and that they were called to do this. And what an impact that must have had on their lives, and yet it had to be something that was kept secret for them. And on the same token, um, the witnesses that had to keep this secret and the impact that it's had on their lives and and to hear some of those witnesses speak about um, keeping that silent from their families what that was like for them for all those years and and being threatened that their families would be harmed if they if, if they were to talk about it and so on their deathbeds or as they were approaching that 50 years of silence that they had signed um, what what impact that had. And, you know, there's so many people and so many stories and so many things. Um, it's it's amazing. Honey, Ted's asking what what would be, what were some of the most amazing things that we felt popped out that were unexpected in this. Ted, I'm going to let you talk to Scott for a oh, second. All righty. I'm sure that, okay? I don't know where to start on that one. <laughs> a loaded question, huh? Well, I, you know, I... I'd spend a lot of hours on the flights back from Albuquerque when I'd go out there and research this before Suzanne and I got married. And I I spent a lot of time analyzing the witnesses, what they were doing when they were 19, 20, 21, 22, and what they were doing later in life. And I guess to put it bluntly, we weren't interviewing the town drunks years later. You know, these were people that have really done well. Uh, business owners, uh, successful trucking company owners, successful assay laboratory owners. They weren't the guys sitting on a, on a bench at the park in Farmington that was looking to tell somebody their story because they were bored. Uh, some of them, or I'll go back to Doug Noland, had only told a few people his story uh, his entire life. And when, you know, Doug had a series of strokes, and I talked to Bill Steinman, who had written the book with Wendell Stevens, and Bill said, you need to get to him 
because he probably doesn't have much time left. And it was like it was a relief for him to tell the story. He said, I've told the story to so few people. And he, he approached Bill after Bill and Wendell had finished the book, which a lot of people did. I mean, Bill, Bill did some fantastic research on the book, but he wasn't in a position like I was where, where I was out there every six weeks. And I'd get done with business at noon Friday, and I'd have Friday, Saturday, Sunday to get done, to hop on a flight back Sunday night to be back uh, to work at my, uh, to actually to go on to see other customers around the United States. So it was a, it was a pretty grinding schedule back then. Not that it's any easier today. But I, I think the witnesses, um, I just couldn't find flaws in their character or why they would be telling such a, a wild, embellished story. So these, these I think that, the, the, okay, and, and I guess the the other thing that um, we were talking about about the secrecy and whatnot, and and she mentioned something about deathbed, and I was wondering how many folks that were privy to the Aztec crash that were told, "Don't you dare say anything," you know, or "We'll do this to you or that to you." How many of those folks have actually? have come close to what you would consider to be a deathbed sort of relation or or a, of a story or telling a story or divulging information when they when they feel like well you know life is almost over i might as well say something about this well without ruining that entire chapter in the whole book <laughs> i'll give you two doug nolan was one mm-hmm uh, he had had a series of strokes now i've been criticized by people uh the skeptics and debunkers said well you know, come on, Scott. Doug had had a series of seven, eight, nine strokes. Um, he was delusional. He didn't know what he was telling you. Hey, he told this story to Bill Steinman long before he had the strokes. Uh, when I talked to him, he was very coherent. He did have a slurred speech as a result of the strokes. Names that he gave me checked out. Uh, where he lived at the time checked out. He didn't live in the Four Corners area per se. He lived right across the border in Mancos, Colorado. Um, Doug, uh, Doug was, in my opinion, very credible. And his friends that he had known all his life backed him up. He wasn't the class clown. He wasn't uh, somebody that was always pulling the wall over somebody's eyes. And so I, I, I put him very high. Uh, Ken Farley was another one. We interviewed him in Batcave. Well, actually, we met him in Phoenix. He drove down from Batcave. I've been criticized because Ken was dying. But the point I bring up to the skeptics and the debunkers, he wasn't that bad. He drove his pickup truck to the interview. He had a 35- to 40-minute ride. We interviewed him for two-and-a-half to almost three hours. Uh, Was he dying? Yes. He was on oxygen the whole time we met him. Uh, as a matter of fact, he was very forceful when we gave him several dates for Randy Barnes and I to fly out there. He said, you better come fast. And we got out there. Within a, no, four or five months, he was he was gone. Um, so, there, you know, and we have a Baptist minister that was at the crash site that uh, was driving back, ironically, to Doug's town of Mancos. And uh, he was at the crash site. And we, Suzanne and I spent three days in Mancos. I think it's pronounced Mancos. 
Mancus, Colorado. And uh, we talked to people that knew him in 48. He just come into town to reopen the the uh, Mancus Baptist Church. And he called his parishioners together that night and told what happened and said, I've been told I've been sworn to secrecy not to talk about it, but I have to talk about it as a man of the cloth. So the, the credibility of people that we've tracked down after 22 and a half years is pretty, they're pretty impressive backgrounds. And and then the big question is, why would they lie or embellish? And some of these people, like Ken Farley, was not local. He was driving through the area when this happened. He knew nobody at the crash site. But then the other witnesses we interviewed, they talked about two or three young men on the west side of the crash site that they didn't know. When we interviewed Ken, we said, where were you standing? He said, we didn't know anybody we didn't like what was going on we walked out to the western edge of the crash site we have the interviews and of all these people that we interviewed well i guess from a baptist minister standpoint how did how did he reckon with it did, did he make any mention as to you know how he fit that all into his theology by any chance at all he had trouble with it he really did um we did not talk to him firsthand. He was long gone before I got onto the case. But uh, there, nobody has come forward yet to say, "Hey, the, you know, we knew Autry," and no, the story's bogus. We've had just the opposite. We've had the old timers come up to us and say, "Yes, he did call everybody together that night. He was driving from Farmington to Mancos and said, "Yes, he was there." I don't want to ruin the whole chapter here. No, no. I, 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 well, regardless, I think folks are going to want to get this book and read it because it sounds to me like, you know, is is there a lot of difference between the book that uh, that you put together and the fellow previous? And I'm, I'm his name escapes me right at the second. Uh, Bill Steinman. Um. Well, I thought there was another name that had put a book together. Well, there's Frank Frank Scully. Broke Frank Scully. Story okay. in 1950. Okay. And his book was Behind the Flying Saucers. And those books, it, uh, you can still find, the book's out of print. But if you go on Amazon right now, there is a new reprint of the book done by Tim Beckley and Sean Castell. And they have brought the book back. And if you go to Amazon, it's called Behind the Flying Saucers. It has a colored copy on it, uh, cover on it now, and uh, you can find the original Frank Scully books also uh, on Amazon, the different collector whatnot, and then Bill Steinman's book that came out in the mid to late 80s is called uh, UFO Crash at Aztec, co-written by Bill Steinman and uh, Wendell Stevens. I think those are still available through the Aztec Public Library in Aztec, New Mexico. But now your book, the book that you're writing now that will be out shortly, and we have to give out this website where folks can, can find and order this book. And, and, and incidentally, you know, go, folks, grab a pen or a pencil because we're going to be giving you this, uh, this website where you can go to the website and, and you want to keep watching the website because the book will be out uh, shortly. And you'll be able to uh, to order a copy of it. I guess my question is: Is your book 
updates the situation, I would think, drastically. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. And I still correspond uh, probably every two or three weeks with Bill Steinman. Uh, for a while, he lost interest in Aztec, uh, kind of washed his hands of the whole thing. When I first contacted Wendell Stevens and met Wendell for lunch down in Tucson, uh, he would not put me in contact with Bill. It took probably eight years, and then Wendell said, uh, Bill's pretty impressed you've really been on this thing, and uh, he, he he's impressed with your hard work. And I uh, got a hold of Bill, and uh, I think he still has a little fire in his eye right now with uh, the Aztec story. Well, this is also uh, so so fascinating, and, and it's um, it has a whole different flavor or feel to it than the Roswell thing. Well, it does, and, and you know, let, let's look at and do a quick comparison. You have Roswell, where you have one or two craft that uh, came down and uh, were from all the books I've read and talking with Stanton Friedman, they weren't in good shape. They were either taken down, again, militarily, and they were destroyed, uh, whatever. Whatever brought them down, they weren't in good shape. You had the major leak with the Army Air Corps back then where Hawk put it out on the wire service. Uh, Army recovers flying disc on ranch and then eight months later you have Aztec and I believe and I think we'll show in the book the government slash military got very good at UFO recoveries within eight months not to put it out on the paper not to release it I think by then of course you had the Air Force established September of 47 now here we are March of 48 March 25th I think new procedures were put into place if one of these discs comes down again, if we shoot one down, whatever, there's going to be a little more defined rule book, so to speak, on how the recoveries take place, how we shut off the media, how we shut off the civilians. And uh, I think at that point they were much better at it than they were at Roswell. So they learned a tremendous amount going through the Roswell experience. Oh, look, they're still paying for it today. I mean, you know, the Air Force has put out two books saying that Roswell didn't happen, you know. The, and, and yet... The and case yet, closed and then the final, final edition, you know. Yet the Aztec crash still remains somewhat unknown uh, when placed aside, uh, up, up against Roswell. In other words, it's like... Oh, Roswell. sure. Roswell is a household word and... Excuse me, I was talking to a gentleman out in California today. Uh, we correspond, and today, instead of email, we were talking on the phone. And he was in the Air Force from 46 to 52. Excuse me, yeah, 50. He got out in 50. And he was talking about it's that, it's that era, that age group that uh, remembers Frank Scully's book, they remember all the hoopla and fanfare when the book came out. And, you know, that, that story died a very fast death, the whole Frank Scully book, uh, because of J.P. Kahn. Are you aware of that? No, no. Tell me about that. Okay. J.P. Kahn was a writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. 
And actually, by the time this all happened, he had left the Chronicle and was freelancing for the Chronicle. And no, no longer a full-time writer. And he thought he and Frank Scully had cut a deal on the story. He got wind that Frank Scully had a big story on a flying disc and a flying disc recovery. Well, there's, I'm sure there's three sides to this story, but I've heard and read Frank Scully's. And last June, I flew out to San Francisco and talked to one person in particular that was very close to J.P. Kahn. He, he was a, the executor of his estate when he died a few years back. And then other people that remembered him at the paper. But basically, they all agree that J.P. Kahn thought that he had convinced Scully to sell he and the San Francisco Chronicle the story. Scully had subsequently written that there had been idle chatter about it, but Frank Scully said, I've already got a book deal, why do I need you? And that's where the stories start to separate. Anyway, the book comes out, it goes to number one hit, 64,000 copies sold. 1950, that's a lot of books, hardback and paperback. Uh, J.P. Kahn's upset. He decides to turn the, the whole story on Scully and starts going after people like Silas Newton, Leo Gebauer, even even Scully himself. And uh, unfortunately, Silas Newton, another one of the people that leaked the story to Scully, was a very, very wealthy oil man, um, owned Newton Oil Company out of Denver offices in Phoenix, uh, New Mexico, New York City, Utah, um, but he was mixed up in some legal problems thanks to J.P. Kahn. J.P. Kahn had actually gone to his investors and spread bad stories about Silas Newton. We cover that in the book. Um, but anyway, I think the public looked at it and went, oh, my God, there's a con artist involved, and the story just died. And I really don't think it was picked up again until the mid-'80s when Wendell Stevens and Bill Steinman brought the story back. That's uh, that, that's just amazing, is what it is. Yeah. Do, do you realize how much information you have given us today over the on this on this interview? Well, I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface. No, well, we're going to, you know... We're, we're we're somewhat running out of time, and and I and I'm going to have to have you back because uh, I can see right now, um, you know, I've got more questions myself that I'd like to ask, and I and I know the <laughs> I know the the audience is sitting there and they've got a list of their own, and we get, I'd invite you because we're I'm going to have these folks back. We're going to have Scott and Suzanne Ramsey back. So write me an email. Go to the website radiodisclosure.com. There's a spot there that says uh, that says email. Just click on it and write us an email and put your question down there because the next time they're on, we'll be able to address those questions. And of course, if you miss the original broadcast, you know we'll, we'll we'll probably run it multiple times. Plus, it's available on it'll be available on iTunes and uh, the podcast site, so you'll be able to um, to actually follow through on that. You know, I, I guess I was going to ask you one more quick question. We had this discussion on the phone. Uh, the other day when we were just kind of setting this up, and that is, uh, uh, and I've, I've asked this to a number of people, so don't feel like you're being put on the spot. What was your what was your overall take on on the uh, on George Adamski? I, you know, 
since you and I talked and I got the email address from that gentleman, uh, we, he and I talked today, and this weekend I'm going to pull up all the Adamski letters and copy them. And I can probably answer that better after I go back. I haven't looked at those letters in five years. I, I remember as a young man I had an interest in ufology, or if that's really a word. Um, and I remember Adamski. Uh, but it wouldn't be fair for me to give my opinion without really going back and, and looking. I, I know as a young man it was far-fetched. A lot of the claims he made were far-fetched. I know you had an encounter, where you, a lucky experience where you got to meet him. Um, and Suzanne and I were talking about that tonight right before dinner. I, I mentioned that you had, had the privilege of meeting him. And she asked me my take, and I, I said, you know, it's been so long, I don't know. He, he obviously played an important part in early UFO studies. I don't know if I want to say research. Well, here, here, here's a guy that got in to see the Pope for some reason. I mean, God. yeah, well, yeah, well, the Vatican has the largest collection of UFO books and material in the world. Most people don't know that. I, and I, I guess the other thing was is that. Uh, you know, I, after hearing him speak, and I, and I said before, he had such broken English, it was very difficult. Uh, this was in Detroit at the Performing Arts Center or something, a very big building. And the, the, the meeting was not sure. well attended, I can tell you that right now. Uh, the place was like three-fourths empty. And it was mm-hmm. it was really hard to understand this man speaking, so it was hard for me to fathom that he would write some of the books that have been written. He had to have co-authors. And uh, so I wonder if, if a lot of the embellishment was not the result of the co-authors saying, look, you know, I'll author this book for you, but uh, if you want to sell books... <laughs> you better juice it up. Right? Yeah, you better right. juice this up some, you know. Because when I saw him in, at his lecture and all that, he was, seemed to be very void of, of any of that kind of thing. He put pretty well there stuck to the facts. He showed some videos and some pictures and whatnot. And uh, they weren't videos back then. They were movies, you know. <laughs> right, but, sure. Uh, right. But, uh, you know, I, I thought that, that, there's always something that is stuck in my mind. Okay, I want to say thank you. Thank you, thank you oh, for coming can, on board. Can we give everybody the website that they can go to? It's www.aztec1948.com. The book is not on there as we speak, but hopefully by the time uh, the show airs, you can order a copy before it goes to print. You can also buy a copy on there right now of a documentary that was done by Red Star Films in 2003. Uh, it's a pretty good documentary, about 55 minutes long. A lot of new information since the documentary was done. And my email address, you can click on my email and send me an email if you have any further questions. Okay, once again, the website again is www.aztec1948.com. And that should be easy to remember. Yeah, Az- my email is easy. It's Scott Ramsey at Aztec1948.com. There you go. There you go. Well, I have to have you, the both of you back. Uh, it's, We'd love to, Ted. That it's, was fun. Uh, it was, uh, it's, 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 been, it's been very, very informative. And uh, you've, uh, I won't sleep well tonight because I'll, all these things will be going through my head. See, <laughs> wait till you read the book. <laughs> all this stuff, but and, th- and I'm not saying that because Suzanne and I wrote it. There's other people that have jumped in. Some other very big names in ufology that uh, jumped in and helped us. And uh, then there's the whole section of us reenacting moving this large craft. 
And you were talking about that. We'll have to talk about that the next time around because we don't have time to do it today. But that is the story in itself. Thank yeah, you that, so very that much. That was an exciting thing. You have a good. You have a good day. Thanks, Ted. We appreciate it. That's going to do it for Radio Disclosure this week. A special thanks to our guests, Linda Moulton Howe, along with Scott and Suzanne Ramsey. Be sure and tune in next week, same time, same station for Radio Disclosure.